This is Tara with SolveCast, and I'm here with Robert Ferry and Elizabeth Minoyan, the founding co-directors of the Land Art Generator. It's an organization that is not only revolutionizing architecture and design, but is also really making us rethink what renewable energy technology can look like, and I'm thrilled to have them here. So, Elizabeth and Robert, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having us. It's really our pleasure. So I wanted to start our conversation with a topic that affects a lot of us, but people may not be familiar with, which is NIMBY, not in my backyard, which for viewers who are not familiar, basically meaning that for structures that are gonna be constructed on public property, that their aesthetic or how they look might deter them from being constructed. So I wanted to ask Elizabeth and Robert, so why does this mentality exist, do you think? Well, there's a variety of reasons, and some of them are very good and well-intentioned. And given a certain circumstance, any of us might be on, on the side of objecting to the use of land for energy projects if they're not thought through in the right way. There's any number of reasons that someone could be opposed to a wind or solar installation. Those include, um, clear-cutting a, a forest or um, interrupting a habitat or the more common objections have often to do with visual uh, pollution as it's conceived, um, flicker sound from turbines, um, and a perceived understanding that it may negatively impact your real estate or property values, which is not borne out by the facts, but it doesn't mean that people don't feel strongly that way. Um, all of this is to say that developers of energy projects would do well to really engage the general public at a very early stage in the planning process so that as to mitigate or alleviate any possibility of pushback. Um, most often when people are surveyed, um, the majority are in favor of these land uses for energy. It's just that the minority that is against it tends to be very vocal, shows up at meetings, pickets and signs and marches. And so um, they often do, um, they are successful in, in, in rejecting these energy installations. How, how many projects do you think, or how large is the impact rather, how many projects have not gone through with construction because of NIMBY? It's hard to say, and there are really two ways to think about that. The most obvious way is a development that's already on the boards, that's going through the process, and then it gets rejected at the end of the day. There are dozens of those every year. The exact number is hard to come by um, because most of the research is very anecdotal based on small survey samples for specific site projects. So um, we, we're not able to actually put a, a number uh, nationally or internationally on that. Just know, we know by reading the news that they happen quite frequently. Um, then there's another way to think about it, and that's in a, in a broader sense. How many projects never even get started or even considered because the, the land that, that would be where the energy project is to be cited is just thought by the developer to be prohibitive for any number of reasons. And, and those are potentially places that are near where we live and work and recreate. Um, waterfronts, public parks, um, areas that are in, in suburban or urban locations may just be disregarded before any planning process. 
process takes place. So I wanted to switch gears just a little bit, talking more specifically about Landar Generator. Why, why, why do we need Landar Generator? What is it doing for our energy industry? What is it doing for sustainability? So the Landart Generator comes at looking at our energy landscape in a couple of different ways. One is through the lens of art and placemaking. So what might it look like if interdisciplinary teams reimagined our energy landscapes as large-scale public artworks? Um, now, of course, these will never replace um, the need, uh, the full need that we have. For our energy infrastructure, but they can be sites that are engaging and tourist attractions and uh, cultural amenities. Then there's the lens of culture, so meaning many things. So what happens if uh, an energy landscape is needed in um, an indigenous landscape in East Africa? So, you know, there's different ways you can look at this. You can go in and just put in the solar farm or the wind farm. But what's happened is you may have cut off migratory paths of animals. You may have disrupted a lifestyle of a group of people who live near that installation. Um, another way of looking at it is someone comes in with uh, an installation, well-meaning, a solar installation, but hasn't engaged community in the start of that conversation. They leave, and a year later, there's a malfunction in the system, and no one's been trained to deal with that. So, you know, all of these layers of culture really pile into why we need to, at the early stages, engage community in the conversation. And that's where the land art generator comes in. You know, we go in and we do participatory design models. We go in, we work with communities to hold design competitions for specific sites. Um, there's a few ways that we're working with communities. And we're aggressive about shared land use because as the requirements for land area for, for renewable energy projects are considerable, we can share them with agriculture, we can share them with um, reservoirs, we can share them with parks and places for people. And that's really where the solution will come in when we do that overlay of our energy landscapes on top of other land uses, because then these places deliver more than just kilowatt hours. They deliver all sorts of cultural content and create economic development. And local culture and community feels connected from the beginning. Include them in the conversation, have a seat at the table early on, and there is much more successful outcome than coming in later. And just like the NIMBY conversation, if you come in too late, you have an engaged community and there will be pushback on an installation. And it sounds like, because I know that when many of us look at a, we all have a, an image of our mind of what a wind turbine looks like and what a solar panel looks like. And you're not only rethinking how it looks, but also really what, what positive impacts it can have for us. So, and I wanted to ask, I wanted to ask you, what is it that Land Art Generator is, is solving for? Because you've touched on bringing community together and you've touched on, you know, beautification. Yeah, I would say at the core, what we're solving for is bringing culture and community-centered design 
and equity to our energy landscapes. And I think that there's a lot we can learn from history. Um, in the, the last time we did a lot of um, infrastructural overhaul in the United States was the Work Progress Administration, WPA, in the 1930s. And the Federal Arts Project was founded at the same time, providing work for tens of thousands of artists who contributed to those infrastructure projects. And so that's why we have beautiful murals and post offices and community centers. We have the sculptures at the Hoover Dam, and the list goes on and on. Songs written about all these projects by Woody Guthrie and the like. So um, it celebrated this important moment in history, that important moment in history. And we have the opportunity to do the same thing today. And it would be a real shame if generations from now, um, those who are looking back at this important great energy transition of the 21st century uh, didn't have that layer of art and culture, storytelling uh, onto it that, that can help them to, to remember and help them to um, celebrate the importance. And trillions of dollars are going to be spent over the next few years to create this energy infrastructure. And, you know, it, just a very small percentage of that put in the hands of um, creatives around the world, whether they're landscape architects or architects or artists, designers, uh, working with engineers and scientists, just a small percentage put in the hands of those people could really change the entire impact that that infrastructure has on our built environment. And I'll just also add that um, in the context of that 20th century historic history arc that we're referring to, those lessons of the 30s were kind of forgotten when it got into the 50s and 60s. And the urban renewal projects, the Robert Moses approach to highways in the middle of neighborhoods, that, that was a huge disconnect. Um, and, and, and neighborhoods were ruined and culture was destroyed. Um, think about the Lower Hill District in Pittsburgh, for example. And we cannot make those same mistakes again. And so I, in a way, that's the, the potential problem that we're solving for, in addition to the fact that we need to make this transition within the decade for our electrical infrastructure. And we're not moving fast enough. And one of the reasons we're not moving fast enough is because there's not a cultural connection to our energy infrastructures. It's still alien. It's still something that people don't know where their electricity comes from beyond the switch on their wall. And we have to change that. We have to make energy an integral component of human culture. So I was hoping that you could uh, talk about from start to finish the the design contest process for our listeners who you know are going to be really interested and excited and want to maybe submit. Uh, I would love to hear about you know how just how do people submit to the you know the final project? Yeah, it's a really nice question. Um, and so for the listeners. We hold international design competitions primarily on a biennial schedule, although we've had some um, additional special edition uh, international open call competitions. But what happens with these competitions is the city comes to us and we work closely with them to put together a design brief that meets the needs of a local site. So we find a local site that makes sense to hold the design competition. So every design competition is site specific. 
Um, we work closely to make sure that we've included little nuggets from local community into that design brief, you know, meet the needs of local community and make sure that everyone feels connected to what is happening in their backyard. Um, we make sure that there is a selection team on board that represents local stakeholders, but also some international talent. It's good to have the eyes of the world on that design site, on that design challenge, and looking at the outcomes from design teams. Um, so the design process itself takes place over a few months. So we do everything we can to make it uh, an, uh, a situation where a team doesn't have to fly to the design site to understand the design site. So there's photographs, there's site conditions, there's weather conditions, there's reports um, that the city and the region has put out for sustainability goals. Um, and a team has a few months to design them for that site using all of the content we provided them. Um, we wrap up the design competition with a publication, with multiple exhibitions, with uh, local community programming, including uh, panel discussions and workshops for community of all ages, and um, of course, educational materials that are unique to that competition. So that design teams themselves get to see their work in a publication that has, you know, that will be seen in libraries around the world and bookstores around the world. Um, they'll see their work in exhibitions. Um, so we hope that in addition to cash prizes, that there's incentive to participate um, because their work will be seen by a lot of people. And so, you know, Milana generated in addition to the design competitions has educational materials for students uh, that can be in you know elementary school or, or college and there's there's a lot of different uh, resources that you're working on so you know with the design competitions and and those other resources you produce what is the what is the overarching impact of all of those together we hope that it's influencing generations of design thinkers um, to, to, to be big in their imagination, to tackle problems using interdisciplinary approaches, to, um, to engage community very early at the very beginnings of conceptualizing projects, and really to have every, everything they see in the world be a potential renewable energy installation. So. You know, every the surface of 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 the most you know complex building facade can be solar, um, and we want to inspire people about the technologies that are already available, like flexible, translucent, thin films, and um, all sorts of luscious materials that can be that can be the creative expression for works of art in public space, for creative placemaking, for shading structures um, that can really help make our cities, living cities, where all the energy and all the other resources like water are generated um, on within the city itself, like a mature forest works in a closed loop cycle. Um, that's the big picture. And we hope to inspire people who are just entering the profession to be thinking that way about everything all the time. Yes, and I wanted to, you know, with every, whenever you're trying to solve for a large problem or trying to have an impact, there's always going to be struggles 
or challenges along the way. So I wanted to ask, you know, first, are there struggles that you come across? And then if you could wave a magic wand and have just any kind of help you could have for that, um, that could be, you know, increasing awareness to these issues or, or really anything, I would just be curious to hear. Funding is always, and everyone's going to say this, funding is always a big issue. So, you know, the money is out there, but how do you tap into the proper resources for the project? I, I think that that's always an overarching conversation. Yeah, we'd love for, to see more public funding for these kinds of creative placemaking projects that are also energy landscapes. And so, in addition to, you know, people, a lot of people have heard of, of wind and solar as the renewable energies. Are there any, what other renewable energy technology have your submissions uh, touched upon? That's a great question. Uh, we put out COI renewable energy technology first in 2012, and we did update it this year. Um, it's a free PDF download, as all of our education materials are. Um, but it goes through... 70 or so technologies that are, you know, within solar, within wind, uh, wave, tidal, algae. Yeah, there's so, so many that we can't go into them all here. But, um, you know, um, saltwater pond, solar thermal, um, the what happens in estuaries as freshwater meets saltwater, there's energy um, that, that's being generated there. Uh, all sorts of energy that exists in the natural environment that's simply untapped in a variety of ways. And um, so that we're excited to dive into that, to follow the new technologies as perovskite solar becomes mature and to see, well, what does that actually look like? What does a perovskite solar panel look like? Um, is it colorful? Can it be, can it be made to be creative? And when you close your eyes and you think of a solar panel, we all have this impression of what we've seen on, on rooftops and, and rays on the ground, but it's that's just the tip of the iceberg. There's so many different ways that you can um, that photovoltaics can manifest themselves. So, so the good news is technology exists yeah. to tackle these issues. It's getting cheaper. The issue is we need culture to back that. We need. Uh, political will and a public will, we need enthusiasm, we need people to really believe that our sustainable future is going to be amazing, it's going to be beautiful, it's going to be culturally responsive, it's going to be what we want and not what's put upon us. Um, and the technology is there for that. And, and I think that that's when we are reaching out to young people, that's what we want them to believe and understand is that when they are at the helm making decisions in the next decade or two decades, they get to bring a positive vision to the world. It doesn't have to be gloom and doom. They get to be at the helm creating beauty and wonder and a place that's equitable and that brings everyone to the conversation that's inclusive. Well, Elizabeth and Robert, I, I want to thank you so much. I mean, this is a in not even just COVID, but really any time, it's so important to think creatively and to be innovative about these big problems, especially concerning the health of our environment and our planet. So I want to thank you so much for sharing your experience and uh, thank you. And also 
for more content like this, please join and look at, take a look at healthcast.com for more information. And thank you so much for your time today.